All right, well, turn with me to Titus chapter 2, and we're going to pick up, at, and we'll probably get through the first 10 verses of, of this chapter. And um, we kind of move from a list of what a pastor should be. We're going to move into a list of what the church should be like. So we're going to talk about old uh, men, older women, young men, young women, and a little bit more on the pastor, too, and, and how he should conduct himself in um, addressing these issues. So Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders there on the island of Crete. No easy task. Um, it was a tough job assignment, but I think every time we get assigned a job, it always feels like a tough job assignment, doesn't it? Because we have an enemy that's opposing. We have uh, those that are not wanting to hear what the Lord has to say. And so we, we have a kingdom that the Lord has sent us to work on that has an, uh, an opponent. And so whether you're on the island or Crete or you're on any town in the world, it's a difficult assignment. But um, he did have some extra challenges there. And he's going to talk to us here about the way we should conduct ourselves. It's not just do whatever you want to do. The church is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and he's going to give specific words of instruction. It doesn't matter who you are tonight, you're going to hear what the Lord expects from you. And, and my question to myself and to you is, are you ready to hear it? Are you ready to hear what the Lord has to say? We begin at verse 1, and then one more item here for the pastor, but as for you, so there's, a, there's this contrast here, so not like these false teachers, but you, you're different. You're going to walk differently, Titus. These guys walk one way, but you are of a different sort, and that can be said for each and every one of us. We're of a different sort. We don't do what the world does. We don't do what those that are wayward in the faith do. We walk and we obey the Lord. So, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So he's going to tell them and, and he's going to give a specific list here of the things that, that he should be saying to the church at these different stations of life and, and how they should conduct themselves. So the godly life that would correspond with these believers, speak that to them. Who gives you the right to tell me how to live? The Lord. The Lord does. As a matter of fact, I don't know if I'd really call it a right. I would call it my responsibility and a mandate from the Lord that I am to first and foremost look at my own heart and life. But then as a pastor, as a spokesman of the, the Lord and his word, I have that responsibility to speak forth the word of the Lord. And sadly, as we're going to see here in just a moment... Um, that's, that's something that seems to be waning. Something that's waning in the world today, in the church today. So there's, there's, a, there's a proper way to live. And t Titus is going to speak that. Ephesians 5.3 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. And, I, and it's really that last phrase that I want to draw your attention to in connection here. As is fitting for saints. He's going to talk about what's fitting for, this, for the young men, for the younger women, for the older women. I, I feel com uncomfortable saying that every single time I say that. So just know that it's Paul that called you old, not me. So just get that off the, off the, the table right now. So, but there's a fitting place. There's a fitting way for you to conduct yourself. For me, for all of us. 
And, and the Lord is the one who speaks to us about that matter. So the, the church is given the responsibility to speak to this. You know, the Bible never divorces doctrine from duty. Never divorces the content of, of um, what we believe in from the way we conduct ourselves. So Titus was to constantly be occupied in preaching and exhorting the body to live a life that would be pleasing to the Lord. And this is the focus and job of a pastor, is to urge the church. We're going to see it here again, that uh, you know, teach them to be zealous, right? To meet the urgent need, to be zealous for good works. So this is the communication. But the communication of biblical truth and the corresponding obedience to that truth as the job of the pastors is something that is being dropped. I got this, uh, this, this um, survey came out this month. This is a brand new survey. It was done by the Arizona Christian uh, uh, School. And they commissioned the Barna group to do this. And what it, what it tells us, and this is shocking, this is just absolutely shocking. I realize you probably can't see all of this, but I, I just wanted to put it up there. So this is right out of their report. But um, 37% of pastors that were surveyed, 1,000, looking at eight different points, making up a biblical worldview. And I'll give those to you in just a moment, what those eight were. And uh, corresponding questions, 37% of 1,000 pastors in America were surveyed, and they determined have a biblical worldview. That's just, that's, that's terrible. 37%. And it, get, it gets worse as you, as you dig into it. So the different categories, um, number one was purpose and calling. Number two was family and value of life. Uh, number three was God, creation, history. Number four was faith practices. Number five was sin, salvation, God, relationship, uh, human character, and nature. Was the next one lifestyle behavior or lifestyle behavior relationships, and then the last category was uh, Bible truth and morals. I'm not going to go through all of these, but uh, um, on, on the matter of sin, salvation, and God relationship, they broke it down to the different types of um, staff pastors at a church, and so when it comes to matters of sin, salvation, and God relationship. 48% of the senior lead pastors have a biblical worldview. 30% of assistant or associate pastors have a biblical worldview. The teaching pastors, 18%. If you're an executive pastor, 7%. And if you are involved in children's ministry or youth, and this is the part that I think is scary, 22% have a biblical worldview. And they're the ones that are teaching the next generation. And go on, if you look under the Bible, truth and morals, 43% of senior lead pastors have a biblical worldview. 32% of assistants have a worldview, biblical worldview. Teaching, 21%. Executive, 8%. And again, children and youth on the matters of uh, would make up a biblical review as it relates to the Bible and truth and morals, 18%. 
And so this is, this is shocking. When they kind of pull it all together, uh, the way it breaks down, and I kind of gave you some individual categories, but when you put them all together, uh, of all Christian pastors, 37% have a biblical worldview of the 1,000 that were surveyed. Now, I don't know exactly who they were or you know, what, if they were particular denominations, but it is shocking. Senior lead pastors come in at 41%. Assistant associate pastors, 28% on all matters. Um, teaching pastor, 13 Children youth pastor, 12% of them have a biblical worldview. Executive pastors, watch out for those guys, 4%. Watch out for all of these guys, really. And, and, and so why am I bringing this up? Because... Titus says, or the Lord, Paul says to Titus, you have to tell these people how to live. And if we look at this and break this down, the people that are telling us how to live in the churches don't even believe in what they're preaching. If they're even preaching it, if they're even saying it. This is something that should cause us all to begin to pray for and to um, you know, pray for the church. I mean, let, let me just say this. Um, and I don't say this as a, to get patted on the back. Please don't do that. I'm not saying this to draw attention. I'm just, I want to say this as a matter of what we're committed to. No pastor, no elder, no home fellowship leader, no staff person, anybody that has a responsibility to preach and proclaim the word of God will ever look like that here they're gonna they're gonna you got to believe in the bible if you want to be in that position um, I know we, we we put out the doctrinal survey that you guys have to answer before you get involved in teaching and I know that for some it's like oh my gosh you got to work this yeah because we don't want to end up here we want to know what people are thinking and saying and believing before we put them in, in that position so no person is ever going to be placed in, in that. You have heard me say so much in the last couple of years that we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, that it has come from the Lord. Therefore, it is inerrant, inspired and inerrant. But it's not just inspired and inerrant. It is also sufficient to address all the issues of our life. And the last one is that it's authoritative. It's not just sufficient. It has the right to speak into our lives and tell us how to live. And that it isn't always going to feel comfortable, is it? Have you read your Bible lately? You know that it's not always comfortable. There's somebody that you've got to go talk to. There's an attitude that you've got to address. There's some mentality that's got to be adjusted because you have encountered the authoritative word of God that has called something out in your life. And, you know, what you've heard me say so often is that, you know, mostly we're okay with the inspiration and then in the inerrancy and in the evangelical church, even the sufficiency, but where we have the problem is with this authority. But honestly, after seeing this come out today, I don't even know if that statement's and characterization of the evangelical church is true anymore. So I, we don't have the whole details, but this is enough to tell us we better be mindful. We better be careful. And uh, again, I just want to say you got to be careful who you're listening to. And, and it's not to say that you, you know, we need to circle the wagons and get a list of people that we'll only listen to. I'm not saying that we should be you know, closed like that. But just because somebody's got a website or just because somebody's got a podcast does not mean that they should be listened to. 
You've got to be discerning. And the, the thing about just you know, throwing out a, bod, a podcast or just having a website and talking about stuff is you, there, there's no character check there. You have no way to know if this person has a good marriage or a bad marriage. You have no way to know if they're honorable in their finances or if they have a good reputation in the community. And so, you know, find the, the and you're here, I realize I'm speaking to you, but you find those men that you can trust. And in the women's ministry, those women that you can trust to speak into your life because you don't know what you're getting when you go out there and you just let stuff playing in. And we are seeing you are grieved as I am grieved to see so many people who once used to cling to the word just drifting. And it's not just a matters of inspiration, but it's also matters of authority. Can it speak to my life? I mean, that's a disconnect, isn't it? If it's inspired, if it's from God, it should certainly, the authority should just go right along with it. But we, but we do make that division. We'll, we'll argue and give a great apologetic for the inspiration of Scripture, but do I let it tell me how to live? And so Paul is exhorting Titus, Titus, your job is to tell people how to live based upon the Word of God. Give them the Bible. Tell them what's expected of them. And this is the job of the pastor. It is my job to speak to those issues of, uh, of life and practice as well as those doctrines. So just something that came to me um, today. Actually, uh, Jim Biggle uh, sent this to me and gave me an article. And I was just shocked by it and began to dig in and actually found the actual research that, that um, the Barna did. So this is the days we live in. These are the times that we live in. And, and, you know, it's like, what is the next 20 years, if the Lord should tarry, what is the next 20 years going to look like if the children and the youth ministers, only 4% of them have a, excuse me, 12%, have a biblical worldview? And the one thing that they do note in this survey, and, and you know this, most people put their faith and trust in the Lord by the time they're age, what, around 13 is what this article says. And 12% of the people that are teaching them in the church don't even believe the Bible. So uh, we, we must be vigilant and be aware of these things. All right, so I realize that's kind of a lot of information there, but I just felt like, wow, oh, okay, he's telling him to speak these things, and now we got a, a group of pastors in, in this nation. And, you know, here's the crazy thing. And I'm going on, I'm, I'm on my rabbit trail here. Here's the crazy thing. Those churches are emptying out. They're not filling up. You know, and I don't think I could have said that like five years ago. But like today, it's just kind of like, I think people with all that we've gone through, they're like, well, I mean, if, if the Bible's not true, why bother? I might get COVID, you know? I mean, sitting by all these people, so I'm not going to go. And, you know, or, you know what about the, the history of the church and all of these matters? I'm not going to go. So the people are, are bailing on the church. And it's not surprising if the pastor's up front is like, ah, you know, we don't even know if we believe this stuff anymore. Well, what am I doing here? I could be at the lake on Sunday. You know, I could, I could be out doing something else. And, and I, I, I think these pastors, and, and I won't say like traditionally liberal. Can you say traditionally liberal? Or those which are most commonly liberal. But those evangelical churches that are, that are changing their beliefs, those are the ones I'm referring to. That Those are the ones that are emptying. Because the believers are like, I'm not going to put up with this. 
And then those that are left behind are like, what are we doing here? So anyway, this is what the job of the pastor. We move on and we get into the details of what Titus is to be saying. He says, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. Be sober. Be very moderate in the drinking of an alcoholic beverage, one lexicon says, a, di a dictionary. Be very moderate. Now, this was addressed by, <coughs> excuse me, by um, Paul in chapter 1. And there in verse 7, we see him address it in 2 Timothy. But now it's just for the, it's not just for the pastor or the elder, it's for, for anybody. Of course, there shouldn't be drunkenness among the body of believers. Um, you should be reverent, that is, dignified or serious. Um, it's the idea that when you're around this older brother in the Lord, that his behavior is such that it invites you and it attracts you to be near them. Not the grump grumpy old men is not a Christian idea. Okay? That's not biblical. The, the, an older man, an older woman in the faith should be something that when people look at them, they're like, wow, I want what you have. I want that sobriety of your life. I want that understanding. He says that you should be temperate. Uh, the idea here is able to curb one's desires and passions. Now that's true for anyone, but it's especially appropriate among an older brother in the Lord that he has arrived at that place where he has learned to control the passions of his flesh. He knows how to make wise decisions with his time, with his money, with his energy, with his eyes. He's not given to the strong pulls of the fads and the latest trends that are going on. He's happy to be wearing the same thing that he's been wearing for the last 15 years. But there's a character depth about him. That when you see him, it's like, I got to get around this guy and just find out what he is all about. Not given to extravagance or overindulgence. He's temperate. And he says that they are to be sound. That is, that they are to be um, healthy. That's where we get our English word hygiene is from this word. So there's this sense of health and soundness that should be, you should be healthy in faith. You should be healthy in love. You should be healthy in endurance, in your faith. Not only sound in what you believe and your understanding of Christianity, but also sound when it comes to living by faith. You're just healthy there. You are a man that walks in faith. This is not, you, you've come to the place where you understand the ways of the Lord and faith is strong within you. Faith in your Lord because you've walked with them. You've seen him come through in those difficult times. So you have a strong confidence uh, in the Lord. You're sound in faith. Um, free from error as it would be that you, were, you know, when we talk about soundness. Trials and tribulations are not an occasion to doubt God but rather opportunities to see how God's going to work it out. That's what we should be finding in those older men in the congregation is that they, they're, they're, they hit a trial and they are, they're unfazed. And that's what's so attractive. They're just like, look at that faith, man. They're not you know, thinking about cashing it in. They're not thinking about all the other ideas that are out there. They are 
healthy with their faith. They're also healthy in love. They have a strong love for God and a strong love for people. They've learned through the years uh, of, of walking with Jesus, of his kindness and his grace and his love, and now they're able to dispense that to those who find themselves maybe in a point of stumbling or falling themselves. They're able to love them and to help them along. And then he also says in patience, they should be healthy in patience. That is endurance. Hardships of relationships or finances or health issues, again, not a reason to say I quit. They understand Romans 8.28. They've walked it out. They've lived it out. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called are the called according to his purpose. They, they just, there's a confidence in the Lord. And so that stereotypical idea of grumpy old men, you know, of the church, you know, they're just unhappy, that, that's not biblical. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you should look like Jesus. Your attitudes should be like his. And it's sad that when there, it seems like the, the older generation of the church and the younger generation are often pitted against one another. And that's not the way it ought to be. And, you know, it's this matter of, um, you know, let's just talk about, you know, uh, worship style and worship music. Is it biblical? I mean, that's what matters. Is it biblical? Does it, does it reflect sound doctrine? And then after that, there are other issues to be concerned about. But obviously, we all have our different tastes when it comes to music. I mean, some of you, I don't know, you maybe still want the Gregorian chants in the church. I don't know. Some of you like the organ. Which, by the way, don't tell me it's loud. Have you ever heard an organ before? I just wish it was an organ. You mean the thing that rattles the, you know, fillings right out of your head? Yeah, but that's a beautiful sound. And, and see how it is? Nobody ever buys a $100,000 organ so it's quiet. You want, the, you want the neighborhood to shake with that, you know, $100,000 organ that's put. So it's just it's a matter of I like the way that sounds. I don't like the way that guitar sounds. And it comes down to these things. But the older people in the congregation ought to be first willing to yield and giving that example to the younger people. And the younger people ought to be saying, we respect you and what you have done in your walk with the Lord and in your faith. And so there ought to be this, this sharing of um, those secondary matters. But for the older man, he, the secondary matters, he's not going to be fighting over that because he has learned to walk in grace. We move into... Verse 3, and we deal with, uh, in verse 4, with the older women. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given too much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women. And we'll get to what they should say in just a moment. But first half of verse 3, or verse 3, the first half of verse 4. Reverent in behavior is to say that the older ladies in the fellowship ought to have a conduct of holiness that is in agreement with who they are as Christians. There shouldn't be this divorce that we talked about earlier between what the Bible says a godly person looks like. There should be a reverent behavior, not taking part in malicious gossip. This is true for all, right? But for Paul, he takes certain things and he applies them to uh, the older men and then he applies certain things to the older women. Maybe that is gender related. 
Maybe that's congregation issue related. Whatever, all of us should be mindful of how we speak. And Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Wow. How have you done this week? No corrupt word out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. When we speak, we ought to be able to put the test, does that impart grace to the hearers? And if it doesn't, then we probably ought to be silent right there. When you see people standing in a round group, you see a, a, a group of older ladies in the church sitting down and talking. You ought to be, there ought to be a confidence that they are speaking words of edification. You know it's not slanderous talk because these are older sisters in the Lord, and that's, they just don't do that. That's not what older Christian women do. They are those that are, that are uh, imparters of grace as they talk to people. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, patience, restoration are the words that ought to be filling all of our mouths as we have conversation. He says, not given to wine. <laughs> I, again, I don't know. We, we know that on Crete that they were um, known for being liars. Um, we know that they made up a special word for them, right? Going creting and is the idea. So maybe drunkenness was an issue as well. We know that they were, were lazy, um, Paul says. So this maybe was an issue, but he, for the third time he brings this up. You know, we talked about this, and I'd encourage you to go to the section, um, chapter 1, verse 7, and we talked about not being given to wine. And you cannot make a biblical case that says that it is uh, biblically forbidden to drink alcohol. You can't make that case, all right? However, there is a strong case for no drunkenness and extreme moderation, and um, so you, you must be mindful. But I will tell you what is completely out of place is this. When you turn to an alcoholic drink to deal with the stress, that is not right. That is to be taken to a brother or sister in the Lord. That is to be taken to Jesus Christ. And if you are drinking to deal with the stress, watch out. If you're doing that, just I need a little joy. I just need a, we need a little more fun in this, this party here. So we're going to drink. So, now, wait a minute. We're, we're trying to alter how we behave and think and feel through alcohol. That is a trap. So wherever you stand on this matter, these are dangers. And if you find yourself doing that, then you should be warned by the Lord tonight. Now, if you're like, no, I just like the way it tastes with my meal. Okay, all right. That, if that's your take on how you want to conduct yourself, I cannot, from the Bible, say that is a wrong um, way to approach it. Um, again, I, I would really like for you to go listen to the 1-7 where I talked a little bit more about why I take the stance and the elders and the staff does that we have here, and that is no drinking. Um, but it's not because we believe the Bible forbids it. Again, the point I made there is you don't want to call me at 1130 at night because you just got in a car accident, and I say, I'm sorry, I can't. Go, I think I might have drank one glass too many of wine at dinner, so I'll have to call somebody else. You don't want to hear me say that. You want me to be available, and who knows when those calls are going to come. And after 28 years of ministry, I can tell you they come at all times. 
Um, emergencies and crises don't schedule themselves, right? So for me, it's like to be, you know, to be ready at all times. But if that's not your position and that's not the view that you have, then again, with alcohol, if you're going to those places to deal with the stress and it's just too much and I've got, I've got, you know, I'm just feeling down. I need to, you know, get a little pick me up. No, that, that's what the Lord is for. That's what the fruits of this, go through Galatians chapter five, read the fruits of the spirit again and find out what the fruits of the spirit will do. You know, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. It says in Ephesians, but what? Be filled with the Spirit. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be in that continual process of being filled. And then the last thing we see in verse 4 for these older ladies is that they should be teachers. So they should be instructing the younger ladies we're going to read. They should know the Word of God. If you've put time in with Jesus, you should arrive at that place that you could teach. And it's like, well, not all of us have the gift of teaching. Agreed. But any mature Christian woman that's walked with Jesus ought to be able to pick up the Bible and say, honey, let me tell you how to love your wife. I mean, your, your, your husband. Let me tell you how to, to, to raise those kids. This is what the word of the Lord has. Let's talk about this. You know, this anxiety that you're going through. Let's go. Let's, let's open the word of God together. Let's go through this. You know, you're feeling overwhelmed. Okay, you should be able to be in that place to instruct. This is a, a general word to all the older women of the fellowship. Well, in the second half of verse 4 into verse 5, we come to this third designation of younger women and what they should be being taught by the older women. So that is the model, is that the older women should be teaching the younger women. Well, what should they be being taught? Uh, admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Paul desires for wives to make their families and their homes a place that is full of love. That's, that's it, is that there would be these wonderful places that people would want to go to. You know, relationships in the first century world were not generally forged in some kind of romantic dating relationship. They were what a mom and dad decided with other moms and dads, the person you would marry. And so this is, this is how it was happened. So this idea, as we read, is to you know, teach them, admonish them to, to, to love their husbands. So you know, romance maybe wasn't a part of the marriage at all. It's, there was other motivations that were going on. So admonish them. You know, it's this idea, it's like I married the wrong person. <laughs> okay, so what does that mean when we say that in our culture? It's like I married the wrong person because the idea is, well, you know, we never were in love with them. I never was really in love with them. But what about the arranged marriage thing? Can you, can you see how faulty that thinking is? I, of course, I hope you have a loving relationship. I hope there's love in your marriage. This is the whole point is that there should be love in your marriage. But for these young women, the older ladies would come along and say, listen, you need to love him. You need to learn to love this man. You need to love your children. And so there was this exhortation that was, was coming. Um, and, you know, I, one interesting moment I had when I was in Nepal, I was talking with this guy, um, and he was um, a missionary 
um, in Nepal. He was Nepali, but he's a missionary to his own people. And um, he came up, and I had just met him, and he goes, I've got to tell you some fantastic news. And I go, what is that? He goes, I'm engaged. I said, well, congratulations. And you know, I said, so um, where did you meet her? Oh, I haven't met her yet. No, you haven't met her yet. Okay, so you're engaged. Yes, and he said, oh, I'm so thankful to my pastor. He arranged this marriage. And I thought, oh, Lord, please don't ever put me in that position to be matchmaker Troy um, back in Lynchburg, Virginia. But th this is what happens in the churches because when you come to faith over in Nepal, a lot of times you're abandoned by your family. And so then the church is taking up that responsibility to help you find your spouse. I'm blowing all of your minds right now, huh? Just imagine the ramifications of all of this. And so the idea is, you know, the pastor would say to the young sister in the church, I think I found, a, 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 you know, somebody for you. Yeah, you know, guy, I think I found somebody for you. And say, yeah, we're, you guys are the ones. When do we get to meet? We're getting married. When do we get to meet? You know, we'll work that out. Be patient, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, I think we got to be careful when we begin to say things like, well, I, I never really loved them, so I think I married the wrong person. Well, I don't think there was a lot of love going on in, in these types of relationships when the arrangement was made. So, you know, we, we say things like that, and if we feel like now we have a reason to leave and say, no, um, you need to be taught. You need to be admonished to love them, which tells us this is a matter of the will and not just simply a matter of emotions and romance. So this is the first thing that they were taught, to love their children what a privilege it is to, to have children and to be thankful for them. And yes, you know, moms, it can be a big chore, without doubt. I, I mean, listen, we raised our three kids, and I, I watched, you know, Rebecca. Of course, I was involved, okay? I was involved with these things. I changed diapers. I babysat. I sent her on retreats. I did all of these things, okay? I was involved. But, you know, she, she bore the brunt of, of that, especially on you know, Sunday mornings. I mean, she never once had help on Sunday morning with kids because I was here. And so every church service before and after, this was one of the hard things um, that, you know, she had to do. But, you know, it goes so fast. And um, I'm thankful for her and that she never once despised or looked down upon that that role, and I just encourage you, moms, love your kids and love the moment that you're in. It's going to go by so quickly. And that they should be discreet, they should be chaste, right? Um, it's, uh, the idea here is that you're in control. There's a, for chaste, it's purity, um, especially with relationship to sexual purity or marital faithfulness. It's the idea of the word chaste there. But, you know, when we look at um, the marriage relationship, and it doesn't matter if you're looking at it from the women's you know, point of view or the man's point of view, um, there's some scriptures, and you put the scripture up there, it's Philippians 2, verses 3 through 7, which is a general exhortation to the entire body of Christ. But if you want to have a good marriage, do this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for your wife or husband. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of, the bond, of, the, of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. If Jesus is willing to serve us like this and think of our interests like this, then it should be really easy for us to do that for one another. The idea is you have the greater that is humbling himself for the lesser, but we're just the same, right? We're just, if the Lord can humble himself and come and serve us the lesser in that way, then certainly we who are of equal faith, right, ought to be able to serve one another. And that's why, so don't do anything through selfish ambition. or if you, if you walked out in home, you're going to have a great marriage. You're going to have a blessed marriage. Um, what else we see? That you would teach them to be homemakers. So if there's a feminist turning in, tuning into this radio station right now, they're, they're bl- blowing a gasket. But this is a wonderful thing. I love my home. I love the home I grew up in. And my mom you know, made it a house. She made that, she made that house a home, a place to, to come to. And, and I, have gr- I mean, I love the thoughts of my childhood and how I grew up. I'm so thankful that she was... Uh, not just a mother, but she was a homemaker. And this is something that ought to be esteemed. And I just, I want to say this, and I know I'm speaking to uh, those of you that would believe it already, but just, if you are a homemaker, thank you for being a homemaker. Thank you for for choosing to do that. And, And that is not like some secondary thing. That is a primary thing to do and to walk in. And so the world beats on our sisters and tells them that if they want to, you know, take care of the home and be a homemaker, the the world is beating on them. And don't ever, sister, don't ever feel ashamed for saying, you know, what is your profession? Do it in all caps and bold and highlight it. Homemaker on that resume or that application that you fill out. Don't be ashamed of that because this this is the Lord's desire is that you would be there. Now, Listen, single moms and even some of the ways in which we live make it tough for that to happen. I realize that. And so I'm not trying to put any condemnation out there. But at the same time, if, you, if mom can stay home, that is a goal to be sought after. Okay? And you'll have to, you're going to have to do without some things. But if it's possible, it should be done. Now, if you're a single mom, then you know what? We're standing with you, and there's no condemnation that you're not able to do that. But a homemaker is a beautiful thing, and if you're able to do that full-time, count it as a blessing. If you're not able to, don't feel any judgment from me, for sure, on this. And when others would try to do it, you just your circumstances are such that you're limited. Homemakers, a wonderful thing. And that they be obedient to their own husbands. So that there would be submission. This is God's order. We, again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But again, when we talk about submission, and people will hear that uh, you know, the Bible teaches and the word teaching that a, a wife should be in submission to her husband. She should be yielding to um, his will in the household. Be, again, more gaskets are blown, and people begin to freak out and say, you know, how can you dishonor a woman, and why would you think that she's so incapable that she would have to do that? And none of that is true. There's no dishonoring here. We're honoring. There's no uh, 
suggesting that she's incapable and she lacks something that only a man has. Not at all. And I give this example just briefly. It was the son who was in submission to the father. And there's nothing insufficient in the son. There's nothing that's lacking in him. And he modeled that. And so if he is to do that, and that is not a statement of being less divine, then certainly a, wo a woman who is in submission to her husband is in no way saying that she, is some, you know, she lacks some abilities and qualities and that there's something about her and her makeup that is less than him. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. So um, that is not what's being said. It's, it has to do with order. The Lord has a creative order, and this is the way he has put it together. And what he says at the end of verse 5 is so that the word of God is not blasphemed. So any of these things in the island of Crete that um, a you know, Christian young woman wouldn't be walking in could have been an opportunity for people to look and say, this Christianity thing is subversive. I don't want anything to do with it. So, you know, that's, uh, he says, make sure that doesn't happen. Verse 6, we move on to the young men. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, orderly and moderate in the way life is lived. Not given to excess, not given to reckless abandonment, not to this big head kind of a thing. Be sober-minded. And um, in, in being sober-minded, it would solve many problems. They should be sensible. They should be reasonable in the affairs of life. Verses 7 and 8, we come back to Titus, and more instruction is given to him. He says, in all things, showing yourself, you, Titus, to be a pattern, to be a model of good works, and doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. So Titus, a lot of these things are going back to what we read at the opening of how an elder should be. He's basically saying, you need to be like this too, Titus. They need to be able to look at your life and say, oh, I get it now. I see how you're living out your faith. And so that is a pattern that I will follow and I will look after. That, you know, the idea is, hey, you know, don't follow me, follow Jesus. Not biblical. Yes, follow Jesus, but the idea of dismissing yourself as a pattern of good works that other people can follow and saying you shouldn't follow me, and that's not. If you're saying that, that's because you're in a, a place of disobedience and rebellion. But that's, that's, not a, that's not a commendable thing to say. What we should be saying is, follow me what? As I follow Jesus Christ. Look at my life, watch my life, watch the things that I have to say. Watch the way I, I do business. Watch the kinds of things I, I, I say about the Christian faith. And do it like that. What, what all of us should be willing to say with humility and glory to God, we should be able to look and to say to anyone, you don't know what to do with Christianity? Then just watch me. Watch how I do it. It's not like we are the perfect. We're certainly not saying that. Well, there's so many hypocrites in, in the church, you know, I don't want anything to do with them. You, all of us should be able to stand up and say, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner that regularly repents, but I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not one that's playing a game, acting like I've got it all together, when in reality my life's a mess. I'm not doing that. So, follow my life. Watch my life. And this is what he's instructing him to do. 
Such a, a strong exhortation. Our lives should be marked as being doers of good. We do good things. We do good works. That should encourage other people to engage in the same. Um, moving on to verses 9 and 10, we come to this the slave-servant um, category. Uh, it's, we're going to apply it as to employees in just a moment, but I do want to take a little bit of time to, to talk about um, bond servants being obedient to their masters. That slaves should be obedient to, um, the, the word master here is the idea of despots, where it, the idea is like one has control over your life. And so be obedient to them. You know, we, we read that today and we're like, oh, this is troubling. I wish you wouldn't have said that. Why didn't he just say, you know, you know do everything you can to stop slavery? And, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to touch on a few things, but I want you to know this. If you look, just turn a page forward. The next book is Philemon. Okay? We're going to dig into it deep there. And we're going to look at this, this, this subject of slavery in the first century and then even how do we begin to think about it today. But slavery in the, in the first century world, some estimated some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Many of them were treated terribly. They did not have rights. Uh, some of them were treated well. Um, and listen, we don't know what the circumstances were for these, these guys. But they were told to be obedient. They were to make certain that they were pleasing to their masters, that they weren't back-talking them. They weren't um, arguing with them. They weren't pilfering, stealing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But they, they showed good fidelity, that they adorned the doctrine of God. He says, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Wow, I mean, this is, this is a big deal, isn't it? So he's telling these slaves, you need to be obedient to your masters for the gospel's sake. For the gospel's sake. The New Testament was not written to overturn social woes and social problems. The Bible was written to instruct believers on who their God was and how to live their life in the circumstances they found themselves. And the, the emphasis of the New Testament was the preaching of the gospel and the expanding of the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. And that's what the early church was focused on. And so I do want to address this thought, though, is, well, if the New Testament, if the Bible encouraged slavery, then I don't want anything to do with the Bible anymore. And we hear a lot of people saying things like this. Again, we're going to dive deep into that. But I want to give you... Um, one passage to consider, and it's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And I'm in this, and I'm just going to zero in on verse 10. He's saying, you know, all of the kinds of things that are, are, pro, that are um, lawless and, and are um, not good. In verse 10, he says, For fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And we see that kidnapper, we think, well, what's wrong? People go around snatching little kids. No, actually, the, the, you could translate this slave dealer. Slave dealer. And, and, and the word here, and I looked this up in four different um, Greek lexicons, and I'll just give you just a quick run through of each one. First one says, one who acquires persons for use by others. Slave dealer, kidnapper. 
Um, a man stealer, kidnapper, one who steals men to make them slaves or sell them into slavery. Um, Lonida says, one who sells persons as slaves, including one who kidnaps persons and sells them. Slave dealer, kidnapper. Um, the last one, and I think I've got this, yeah, the complete biblical library up there, is used of those who trafficked in human beings, whether by enslaving free men or stealing the slaves of others for resale. This is the New Testament. This is, this is it. So the form of slavery that existed in the early days of American history in this country, if this would have been obeyed, it wouldn't have been here. Because they were being kidnapped, they were being bought and sold, both where they were being kidnapped and rounded up, and then they were being sold um, to those uh, slave traders that would take them across to other places and they'd be sold. This was forbidden. So this idea that the Bible does not speak to this is, is not accurate. And there's many other things too. Even the fact that Paul is going to instruct and give Teaching to a slave was something that would have not happened. Why would you tell a slave anything? You act as if they have some kind of moral compass and you're going to tell them how to live. The fact that he even instructs them. Now, here we are in 2022 and that, that's, we don't get that. We don't understand that. But in that day, to even take the time to a, instruct a slave, which happens in almost all of the epistles, right? To do that is to acknowledge that they are somebody that's worthy of being given good godly instruction. He calls them brothers. And there's many other things. So we're going to dive more into this when we get into Philemon. But I didn't want to hit this and, and not make any comment at all. But as we apply it to um, our present day, uh, and we think about the application in our own life, is how are you at work? You know, don't be... Contrary with your boss. Don't waste your time at work. Don't take things, well, you know what? They really owe me money anyways. You know what? They really aren't good stewards with what they have. I'll be a better steward with this than what they've got. So we take it and we go home with it. And we try to justify, well, it's not like I'm taking a lot. It's just a little bit. No, that's pil the word is pilfering. Not, you know, grand larceny, right? I mean, it's, it's pilfering. It's just it's taking a little thing here, a little thing there. And so he's given that instruction to them. And so it is. Uh, applicable to us. And the word that is used here at the end in verse 10 is that they may adorn cosmeo. And, and it's the idea mainly of what a woman would do in adorning herself. But it was also used of military units when they would get prepared for battle. It could also be used of, it says, of constitutional regulations that give order to society. So it's used in, in some different ways, but the basic idea of this word is to put in order, arrange, prepare, adorn. But for these servants and these slaves, they had the high and wonderful privilege to um, adorn the doctrine of God by the way they conducted themselves in that most unpleasant situation of being a slave. So it took a terrible situation and it raises it up so high. It's like, who, who are any of us, slave or not, that we could adorn the doctrine of God? People should be able to look at our lives and say, 
your work ethic, your conduct, your speech is beautiful. And I want it. Why is it? Oh, well, let me tell you why. Let me tell you of the doctrine of God. Let me tell you the things I believe. Because this is the way I conduct myself in this manner. And we have this opportunity to give this. Now in the New Testament, again, this word is used primarily of women adorning themselves. In Matthew 12, 44, it's used of that person who had the demons cast out. And that they needed to make certain that the house, it speaks of the house being put back in order. Uh, you know, the demon being cast out. So it's used in that context. It's also used of the walls of the New Jerusalem, how they are adorned. So it can be used in some different ways, but here it's talking about our, our conduct. Our conduct adorns the gospel of God. I don't know how you feel about that. Maybe like, man, I wish that wasn't, I didn't have that responsibility because it's a high responsibility. But we should be honored. We should be considering it a privilege that we could do anything that would cause people to look at our lives and say, I want to know about your God. And this is what these servants enslave. So, you know, we may hear this through the ears of, um, you know, 2022 and him telling slaves to be obedient to their masters that they might adorn the gospel of God. And we think, well, that's just, and, and many do. They'll bring accusation against the faith because of that. But if you are living 2,000 years ago and you hear that you have the way, you have it in your power and the ability to be a light and to be a witness to your master, well, suddenly your circumstances, which are not favorable quite often, would be lifted up and they'd be elevated and give new meaning and new purpose for the circumstances that you're in. It's kind of like, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, okay? So I'm in these trials, I'm in these unpleasant experiences, but, but I have the opportunity to count it all joy, to respond a certain way in the difficulty. These servants and slaves were told to respond a certain way, and that is they were to model what a Christian is like, even in those most difficult circumstances, which means this, before you start to excuse yourself or Troy tries to excuse himself to have conduct that is below what I've been called to because my circumstances are so tough, maybe we should think about that slave a little bit longer. Because when we do that, we're not going to feel comfortable saying, yeah, but do you know what happened to me? Do you know what my circumstances are? This is why I believe I'm off the hook from living a godly life. Because they've been so terrible. Well, are you a slave? Because those circumstances, which could be quite terrible, they still were told to walk in a way that was befitting them as a Christian. So, yes, I, we, I think we can all stand and say slavery was a terrible thing. Um, but... The, the accusation that the Bible, the New Testament, does nothing to address this issue is just not true. And we'll dive into that a whole lot more. And um, just a little to think about is, if you want to look and see how it is that slavery was overturned in this country, then you're going to have to look in the face of a lot of godly Christian men and women who saw it as such and who sought to change it because of their faith 
in Jesus Christ, black and white. Black and white abolitionists both, because of their faith, wanted this to be overturned. And so they're the ones that led the charge. So we'll, we'll look at these things. I'll give you names. I'll give you dates. I'll give you quotes as we, as we head into that. But just some practical instruction for us all. I mean, there's, there isn't any of us in here that didn't have something that would apply to us on how we should conduct ourselves um, in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us, that exhorts us, it challenges us, Lord, it even at times rebukes our speech, it rebukes our thoughts, it rebukes ideas that we have. And Lord, we want to just say thank you for the word. We thank you for this amazing book that sits on our lap that you have delivered to us. And so, Lord, we want to hear it and we want to receive it. We want to be instructed and we want to be exhorted by it. Lord, we pray for the church in America. Lord, we pray that these men who answered a call in their life, presumably, to go into ministry, that, Lord, whether they had it straight when they began it or they got twisted along the way, Lord, we pray that you would, you would do a revival among the pastors in America, that they would rediscover the beauty of your word and your truth that they would preach it, that they would teach it, that it would be lived out. Lord, help us. Lord, we thank you for where you have us. But Lord, we want to take heed lest we fall. And so give us, Lord, that grace to continue to have a right attitude and heart towards your word. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.